a Bosnian maple that will make one piece violin backs is basically a hundred grand. So you got a hundred grand standing in the forest somewhere that is nobody's watching out for it, and and uh, so there's just numerous instances. There's a a park in Seattle that had 25 trees taken out of there. How did they do that? Well, they put mufflers on their chainsaws and, or put a pipe on their chainsaws and dip it into water so it doesn't make any noise. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. My name is Joe McHugh, and for this episode, we return to a conversation I had with Bruce Harvey, a tonewood expert living on Orcas Island, one of the San Juan Islands off the coast of Washington in the Pacific Northwest. In part one of this podcast, we talked at length about the kind of woods used to make violins, cellos, and basses. Here, Bruce talks about the wood that is used for making bows. We talk about bows and using that oh, machine yeah. and, and why yeah. permabuco. What you were telling me earlier about why they use that wood initially and why they're still with it. Uh, going on the coast. Well, I'm certainly no expert on this, but it's... Okay, permabuco is the wood of choice for, for uh, bows. It's it's uh, grows in Brazil. Brazil is a country that was named after wood, Brazil wood, and also... There's a state in Brazil named Pernambuco, and uh, it's a coastal wood that they exported to Europe for dye wood. It's, it's, it's a spectacular dye wood. I used to have a, a ton or two of it, and, and bow makers would come out and go through the stacks, and some would put it in a bathtub, and if it sunk, that was a good thing or whatever. I don't know, but they were doing various things to... Uh, test it to see if it would make a good bow or not. And they would make shavings. And, oh, I, m- I remember vividly coming back the next day and it had rained where some Pernambuco shavings were and it looked like somebody spilled grape juice. So this stuff is stunning as a dye would. It makes purple dye, which apparently is pretty hard to replicate any other way. Purple was a, uh, a very sought-after color in the dyeing industry. So they would import Pernambuco to... to to make dyes out of. And I think that's how it probably got into bow making. This stuff was probably laying all over the all over the place on the docks and somehow it got into in bow makers' hands. And it's amazing that that wood has held up over the years as the the wood of choice for violin bows. Because there's a lot of woods they didn't really have access to back then. And a lot of interior South American woods, African woods, and Pernambuco has held up. which I just think is remarkable. But it's a very quirky wood as far as selection. One thing that did get developed is a fellow named Lucci. His name's always pronounced Lucci in violin circles, but I learned the other day that it might be Luchki. And uh, anyway, the Luchki meter, or Luchki meter, you attach two sensors on the end of each potential bow making stick and this luchi meter reads i'm not even sure what it reads but it tells you 
whether or not that stick will make a good bow or not. And, uh, you know, it's just one of the, one of the tools of a bow maker. Some people believe in this thing. Some people believe it's who I don't know what to think. I do know that, that, you know, bow makers used to come out with their meters and, and, uh, and they'd write down the readings on each stick and I'd see four or five different readings on there. So I think, you know, you are plugging in certain variables like moisture content and you're kind of taking a guess at that. So that might create the variability, but it's, it's one tool that's used by bow makers to determine whether or not a stick is suitable for bow making or not. I think that's really interesting. Is it sending electrical current through you? Yeah, I think, yeah, it's maybe the velocity of sound. I don't know, but it's, hmm. it's some people swear by it. And uh, now apparently I just ran into uh, some friends at the NAMM show last week and they are uh, using it on spruce as well. So it's another tool, you know, again, the brain, I, I think the brain, you pick up a piece of wood and you rub it, you tap it, you stick your fingernails into it, you mentally weigh it. I think your brain will tell you everything you need to know about that piece of wood. That's my feeling about it. But or it'll tell you a lot. And uh, but you know people like their their meters. So generalizations, big generalization. Violin makers versus other instrument makers or bow makers, is there a personality trait that you see, a, a kind of a different person is drawn to making violins? Um, okay, uh, common belief has the violin maker being, uh, let's see, I don't know if I want to go down this road. Violin makers are noted for being in, in, incredibly picky in their wood selection, incredibly secretive about their methods all the um maybe negative traits in the world of luthery and i find it to be exactly the opposite i find there to be way more camaraderie in the violin world as far as sharing methods as far as their methods of working that their uh, violin makers are are very conscious of that the instruments that they love and are emulating were made in were made quickly there's gouge marks on the scroll there's these these guys were were they weren't uh they're getting the work done and it, there's a certain work ethic and a certain style among violin makers that that i really appreciate guitar makers on the other hand <laughs> I think all those guitar, and again, these are heavy generalizations, but guitar makers are the ones that I find to be very, for instance, you, you have a very, very difficult time selling guitar wood that cosmetically is flawed in any way whatsoever. It's like they want it to be absolutely perfect. And I can understand that. Violin makers are more concerned with the, the, uh, the physical properties of the wood, the weight, They'll accept a little knot in there, or a little flaw, you know, a little bit of color, or whatever. And I, it's it, and that goes against the grain. The general perception is the violin. The violin world is much pickier about its methods than than let's say the, the guitar maker. And I find it to be exactly the opposite. When Bruce and I talked on the telephone before Paul and I left for the San Juan Islands, 
He mentioned a problem plaguing the tonewood industry, and I wanted him to expand upon that subject. I mean, anybody that's flown over the Northwest has, has seen the clear cutting, but something that, that I find even more insidious is the poaching which is going on, which is that the thieves are targeting one special tree that they know will make guitars or violins, usually guitars, and they'll go in and they'll steal it. And this is this is happening all over the world. This is not something that's that's uh, just limited to the U.S. I mean, it's going on all over the world. I mean, basically a bounty has been placed on the heads of these trees that uh, a Bosnian maple that will make one piece violin backs is basically a hundred grand. So you got a hundred grand standing in the forest somewhere that is nobody's watching out for it. And, and uh, so there's just numerous instances. There's a, a park in Seattle that had 25 trees taken out of there. How did they do that? Well, they put mufflers on their chainsaws and, or put a pipe on their chainsaws and dip it into water so it doesn't make any noise. And there's a lot of theft going on, and it's given the, the Tonewood business a bad name, justifiably so. And, and to the point that I've kind of distanced myself from it as far as it's not, it's not a great business to, to uh, be associated with because it has such a bad name right now. A lot of trees are getting stolen, and and there are some areas that that I'm kind of an unofficial custodian of that I make a point of going up to every year, making sure that nothing's happening. And um, it certainly is tempting uh, for somebody to go in there and, and steal trees. Somebody pathetically easy to do. So it's 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 something the public needs to be aware of because. If you see somebody at a park with a load of firewood, you know, <laughs> I mean, how do these guys steal 25 trees from a park in Seattle? I'd like to know the answer to that one. I haven't actually been to the park, but I read the articles online and it showed the, the stumps and, and the remnants. It's real easy to tell from the remnants what they're after. I mean, the wood's cut to 24 inch lengths. Firewood cutters aren't cutting to 24 inch lengths. That's guitar wood right there. So... That's the bad side of the tone wood business, and and uh, and it's happening, it's happening all over the world. So, and what role do the uh, musicians play or not play in this, or how much do they need to be aware? Ah, boy. Well, there is a uh, there is a, a lot of um, there's a movement towards certification, and. Uh, I mean, I live on an island. I live, you know, I don't live here by accident. You know, I don't want to go down the red tape road. I, I won't go down the red tape road. I'll, I'll quit before I go down the red, red tape road. I don't want to register my tree with somebody in the government. I mean, I could tell you stories forever about my trying to deal with the government on, on just even local issues. It's just not something that they're really qualified to deal with. So. So yeah, it's a it's a delicate issue. Certification. There is a lot of wood for those people advocating certification. There's a lot of wood right now that's being sold as certified wood that is is illegal as 
could possibly be. For sure. I know this for sure because I'm in the biz. I know what's going on. It's mostly with exotic woods, not so much uh, spruces and maples from North America. But, I mean, there's a lot of bogus certification going on right now. So I don't know that that's necessarily the cure to this problem. The cure to the problem is to get people aware of of um, that they're living amongst trees that are potential tonewood candidates. And I think people with private land should should be aware of that. For instance, if oh there's a there's a tree that is within two miles of us right now, was within two miles of us. And 25 years ago, it's a, it's a quilted maple. 25 years ago, I spotted it, informed the owner that, hey, that, that maple might make good instruments. And so you, you should be aware of that. And well, you could even consider taking it out. I mean, these maples do die, okay? Well, last year, that unbeknownst to me, the tree did die. One section of it is completely lost its bark, and half of it fell on his kitchen you know i'm not advocating taking that tree out 25 years ago but in retrospect i am maples are they're not like conifers they're they're uh they have a lifespan and it might have been good to take he would have he would agree with me that 25 years ago that tree should have been taken out and and turned into into some instruments as it is now it 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 died and wiped out part of his house did you get any wood from it? I did, but it's not worth, you know, it's when maples die that turns the wood brown and not good for anything. So it's not good for anything. Can, there were some bowls, there were some ukuleles, but it wasn't. So. Same um, thing with spruce? Spruce is, conifers are a lot different. They're, it's absolutely amazing, like redwoods. Redwoods is a great example of uh, something that should have never been. I mean, they're still insisting that 4% of the original old-growth forests are still standing. That 4%, I distinctly remember when I was a kid in the late 50s, seeing that same percentage tossed around, that 4% of the groves are left. And now we're all these years later, all these old-growth redwoods taken out, and we're still 4%. I don't think so. so. But a redwood grows maybe a 15-foot diameter redwood maybe grows two millimeters in a year. That's how tight the grains are in those things. 50 grains of the inch, you know, they're they're hardly growing at all. And uh, yeah, they do blow over. Engelmann's blow over. Engelmann spruce blows over because they have a very shallow root system. So if you go into a forest and you see the, the one tree maybe Maybe the wind blew the top out or something. You know, I mean, that's how that's how, that's how this whole country should have been logged is selective forestry, going in and and highly valuing the wood instead of the Forest Service hardly charging anything for the wood. And and we, I mean, we did the same thing to this country that that we've done to every other land that we've encountered as human beings. We cut it all, and then the stuff that's left we supposedly highly value. But and that's not the way it should have been done, and that's what we're that's what we're facing now in Alaska. Same sort of thing. Yeah, you can find windfall Sitka spruce for for guitars all day long, and I have. So I think it's possible to supply the whole instrument making world with reclaimed wood. Maples. That's another story because maple you kind of have to work with fresh wood, but 
I'd like to see some of the the, the clear cuts turned into curly maple plantations with genetically selected curly maple. I mean, as a business model, there's your business model. Don't replant it with uh, Doug fir and you know, or any any conifer species. It's just going to be the scroungiest, lousiest, limiest wood. You, you can't grow guitar tops. That's something that nature creates. It's thousands of years. It's an old growth forest that produces guitar tops. Maple, on the other hand, I think you could you could grow a ten acre plot, and every single maple on that plot will be curly maple. And uh, you know it's doable, but no, nobody's doing it. So how many years to harvest? Seventy five, hundred. Totally doable, and totally worth it. Because uh, if you're growing for money, which Warehouser is consider growing 10 acres of curly maple i think they're probably cutting more like in 35 year flips but you know you could you could do a hundred year flip on on curly maple and do quite well well this is why i'm really attracted to interviewing you in this whole world because again we're dealing with instruments you know that are really held up as the the gold standard art guanary stradivari these are instruments made in the late 1600s 1700s you're dealing in a different idea of time than this culture is, especially in the corporate world where you have quarter returns on investments and you got stockholders, all this nonsense that is moving everything into this kind of truncated way of being in the world and that you're never a custodian of everything. You're here now to get your best out of it. There's no idea that there's another generation coming. Well, that's an American thing too. I mean, in terms of Tonewood, there's a valley in Italy, the Val de Fiem. And it's very famous as being uh, the Valley of Fire, is the translation on that. And it's it's very famous for being the place where the cream and ease makers got their spruce. So there's, it's uh, it's treated and respected in that light that these trees are for violins. I haven't visited there. I'd love to. I'm sure that they they trim the limbs and all that, but I, I think it'd be very very difficult to to grow spruce for violins because very few of them split straight. You again genetically, you might be able to clone something so that it would produce violin spruce. But it, but anyway, this valley is very famous for producing violin wood, and I do know violin makers who have gone there and and were allowed to cut down a tree. So that. You know, it's a different attitude than we have here. Here, we just cut it all. And so it's more of an attitude. And I think the Europeans being the longevity of the culture compared to ours is, I think they've grown to respect the trees in a different way than we do here, obviously. So. When you die, do you have your wood picked out for your coffin? Uh, no, that's kind of a good question because I have talked about it that I, th- I don't probably more like what wood would be used for the pyre probably right in the middle of my wood barn that whole wood barn will probably go up but uh no i haven't really i haven't considered that what's the yeah. coolest tree you ever cut down or found oh boy probably my well there's a lot of stories one of my favorites was um a friend of mine was up at in um about 200 miles north of here and one night, and he, he lives in, on an oyster lease. 
up in the Jervis Inlet up in BC. And one night, somehow, a tugboat captain, I think alcohol was involved, but somehow he helped a tugboat captain with his, uh, uh, he was hauling a, you know, they have these huge booms of logs and somehow he helped the tugboat captain out of distress. I'm not sure the exact story, but somehow in, in payment, he got a nice spruce log. And so this spruce log, really, really a nice log. So he sent me a piece in the mail and sure enough, it was violin wood, a log it was called, named after the guy who procured it. Very nice uh, white Sitka spruce. But anyway, it wound up sitting on top of a, an oyster bed that was probably six foot thick with oysters. I mean, it was just immense amount of oysters. So, I, you know, I, I have pictures of all this. So I took a chainsaw and a jar of cocktail sauce out every day. And I just had a wonderful time cutting up that tree and eating oysters and swimming the water was the reason those oysters were there we, i mean oysters need 65 degrees to reproduce and the water up there the tides hold the, the water in so it gets above 65 degrees so that's why there's just so many oysters up there we, i mean we went out and picked up 20 gunny sacks of oysters for his business one night on a low tide and we didn't even dent it you couldn't even tell that we had been there that's how many oysters there were but just the whole memory of of um and putting all that wood on a tugboat he had a tugboat and then and was covered with billets of spruce for cellos and uh it was just a really nice memory and it was it was just a good memory a lot of stories like that so and you wonder now where those instruments are and oh, carry yeah. some of that spirit or soul of those you can things. tell you can you can uh uh you can look at an instrument and and I did this the other day with an instrument. Looked at it and I knew what it was. A lot of trees have very distinctive um, markings or, or medullary rays, or whatever. So you could, and I, you know, I could tell what tree that was. So here's Bruce playing a short segment of music on the mandolin, an instrument he made from wood that he went out into the forest to find. Here we go. it remarkable that the making of violins has changed so very little over the centuries. Violin makers today use many of the same tools that were used by the old Italian masters in Cremona and Venice. While tonewood hunters today, such as Bruce, use tools that are just as old, a pot for heating wax to seal the end of logs, for instance, 
and a fro and mallet for splitting the wood into billets. But there is a fascinating new tool that can expand what we know about the wood used in old violins. And I asked Bruce to talk about it. Uh, one thing I wish I would have gotten into, uh, <laughs> I might still get into it, I don't know, in my old age, but um, is dendrochronology, where you, you're able to look at a, a violin top, for instance, and by the, the, the spacing between the grain lines, you're, you are theoretically, and this is, I would like to know if it's, you can actually do this, I think the answer is yes, you can theoretically tell when that violin was made. For instance, the, uh, there's a violin in the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, in England. There's great controversy around this violin. It's, still, it's, it's a Stradivarius that, when uh, Stradivarius violins first started coming back into vogue, which was 100 years after they were made, a guy named uh, Teresio went around and collected these things from churches, and, and, um, and he always talked about this one violin that was perfect. It was in mint condition. The varnish had looked like it was applied yesterday, and I'll bring it next time. And it never did show up, so he gained the name the Messiah. And the Messiah violin resides in the Ashmolean, and people have said for many, many years that, no, it's not actually a Strad. And my feeling is, is that you could take, and there are people doing this, there are pe people making a living doing dendrochronology on violins, but I'm not positive how accurate it is, and I'm not really qualified to say one way or the other, but it would be an interesting road to go down to to be able to look at a violin top and tell whether or not it actually was made in, when it was supposedly made during Strad's time or 100 years later. So Because they could see the years when there was more moisture, more growth. Yeah. Literally match it to that year in the history of right. the natural world and right. say that piece of wood really grew at that time because these lines are exactly matching. And that's, that's how they were uh, relatively recently able to determine that a large earthquake hit the northwest in 1700 and they went to the cedar stumps and and dug into those and found out figured out that these cedar stumps died sometime between 1650 and 1750 100 year increment and then somebody had the bright idea to look at tidal wave records tsunami records in japan and they were able to pinpoint it to the hour in the year 1700 at a 9.1 earthquake hit in the Northwest. Before that, and people didn't believe, oddly enough, I don't know why they would believe this, they were able to build nuclear plants because of that belief that this area was not prone to big earthquakes. But that, those cedar stumps and the dendrochronology was a huge tool in determining when those trees died. So I assume you could apply that to violins, and I know there are people doing that, but there's a lot of other variables, you know. Going back to this magical thing about instruments, the movie The Natural, he uh, makes his he makes the bat out of the tree that was hit by lightning. So have you dealt with wood that's been... You can see lightning strikes in wood? I did take apart a tree that, that did get hit by lightning. One of my favorite trees is a bear claw tree in Idaho. I don't know that it... Any violin makers have hit a home run with it, but... Oh, actually they have. No, that, that was a pretty well-known tree. Heavy bear claw in the Engelman. And uh, that's the only tree I could think of that I did take apart. Where do you think those violins are now? 
Oh, um, I know where there's a few. Um, no, they got in the hands of some really good makers. It's a very distinctive tree. I mean, just really heavy-duty bear claw. Uh, big worms growing, like, hundreds of these. All hundreds of these worm-like uh, figures in the wood. And uh, it's very hard to find. It's maybe one in 50 trees has bear claw. And then one in 30, let's say, or 25 split straight. So to find a split straighting tree that has bear claw in it is a pretty rare deal, you know. I'd love to have a violin that was hit by lightning. Yeah. <laughs> As a fiddler. Well, I, you know, I didn't even think of that until just now. The only, I mean, uh, I never ever verbalized it. But I, that tree's called, uh, what was that tree called? BC Log. No, that's not BC Log. What was that tree called? Can't remember. Came from Lolo Pass in Montana. Uh, but then right across the border in Idaho. So it's... I can't remember the name of that tree. But anyway, it's one of the best bear claw anglemans I've ever run into. So it's out there, lightning struck tree. So do you do you, uh, you name the trees? Yeah, mainly so you can keep track of them. And if you want, if you want more of that tree, you could say you want A log or B C log. I have a whole journal with all of them listed in there. No Messiah log. Yet. Hmm? No Messiah tree. No, no, they, no. Just usually letters. That came from Fred Meyer. Fred Meyer, who was cutting wood up in Alaska, that I told you about. He was dismantling bridge stringers, and he would name the the tree after the river that it crossed. So Fish Creek that was F log or F C F log, I guess it was. So I stole that from him. And it's a good idea, you know, because you can, and a lot of violin makers kept track of those letters both from him my letters and and his letters so it's that's a good thing to do because i can go back in my journal and say okay that was cut in 80 or 82 and it came from this part of the world and it's it's a nice thing to do so well that winds up our visit with bruce harvey but as i was about to pack up my recording gear to head for the ferry that would take us back to the mainland I happened to mention to Bruce that I once had the opportunity to interview the folk singer Pete Seeger. Like many fiddlers I know, I have a dose of the wanderer in me. I've lived in many places and made many friends, and I count that a blessing. But like the sturdy tree that stays rooted in one place, Bruce reminded me there is another way to be in the world. So we were talking about Pete Seeger, and um, just tell me that story. Oh, well... uh... I mean, Pete, as we all know, is just—I mean, just an incredible fountain of knowledge. But he—he he did say one thing in the brief conversation I did have with him very early. This is at UC Berkeley, so it would have been 1971 or so. And he said something that always stuck with me. And he said, uh, "Find a place and stick with it." That was a big piece. I think somebody even asked him, "What's the best advice you can give to?" you know, somebody in their early 20s or whatever, but he thought it was very important to find a place and stick with it. And I tucked that one under my belt. And so I found a place and I stuck with it. And it's, I think it's great advice because you, you know, after 30 or 35 years in a community, you, you, you know, it's important to have that kind of uh, longevity in a community, especially here on Orcas Island. You see everything changing and think that, it's 
important to stick to a place, especially these days. People move around a lot. And so I kind of vowed to find a place and stick with it. And that's what I've managed to do. And, and I plan on sticking with it. <laughs> so we'll see. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. And here is a short passage from a letter written by J.R.R. Tolkien, author of Lord of the Rings. I am obviously in love with plants, and above all trees, and always have been. I find human maltreatment of them as hard to bear as some find ill-treatment of animals. (laughs) ¶¶